So if we think of Jonah as a limited run series on Apple or Hulu, last week's time in chapter one was the pilot. We were given a little bit of backstory. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah hightails it in the opposite direction and winds up on a boat to Tarshish. God sends a storm. The others on board are frightened while Jonah sleeps. They decide together that Jonah is the problem, so the sailors eventually agree to toss him overboard. And Jonah winds up in the belly of a big fish, or as we learned as children, a whale. Last week at our evening Sela service, we heard the first two chapters or episodes of the Jonah story from the whale's perspective. Before Jonah arrives, Whale has a family, Whale has a song to sing, and Whale happily plays in the sea, splashing boats and soaking the sailors' lunches. Whale enjoys a good life filled with gifts from God. One evening, a storm blows in, and the story tells us that Whale heard the groaning of a boat, the moaning of men shaken and afraid. Whale followed the sound. We know what happens next, of course. Jonah comes flying overboard. And now I invite you to listen as I read, beginning at chapter 1, verse 17, and continuing through chapter 2. Together, let us listen for the word of God. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. From the belly of the underworld, I cried out for help. You have heard my voice. You had cast me into the depths and the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds me. All your strong waves and rushing water passed over me, so I said, I have been driven away from your sight. Will I ever again look on your holy temple? Waters have grasped me to the point of death. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head at the base of the undersea mountains. I have sunk down to the underworld. Its bars held me with no end in sight. But you brought me out of the pit. When my endurance was weakening, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those deceived by worthless things lose their chance for mercy, but me, I will offer a sacrifice to you with a voice of thanks. That which I have promised, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it Vomited Jonah onto the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And just as an aside, they could have picked a nicer verb. Clearly they didn't want to. Oh well. In the storybook version, Whale hears God speak directly to him. Save the man Jonah. Whale had never saved a drowning man before. He opened up his mouth as if to swallow a thousand tiny fish. And slurp went the man Jonah. 
In the way of many children's books, this version gives us an imaginative view behind the scenes, a different window into the story, which is helpful because my take on this story has been all over the place this week. Last Sunday, I felt tremendous empathy for Jonah. Who wouldn't run in the opposite direction when asked to do such a difficult thing? As we sat around the table at Bible study, we were still feeling empathetic, wanting to give Jonah the benefit of the doubt, the generous read, as one of my seminary professors encouraged. Earlier in the week, I could have sworn that Jonah confessed in the midst of this psalm-like prayer, along with offering thanksgiving and praise. And even upon a closer look, those of us who were walking through this text word by word and line by line on Wednesday, really wanted to see him in the best light. We wanted Jonah to have learned his lesson, to be genuinely repentant, to have, to have become as devout and as faithful as the sailors on that groaning boat in chapter 1. So I and we read the psalm through those eyes, and then I delved more deeply into some of what scholars have to say. My goodness, some of them really don't like Jonah. And this psalm is where they begin to build their case. Early on, the speaker, Jonah, states that he called out to the Lord. At least one scholar, Phyllis Tribble, begs to differ. The pagan sailors called out to all the gods they could think of, and then they called out to Jonah's god. Jonah, at least as we read in the text, does not call out to any god at all. Then in the psalm, Jonah asserts that God cast him into the sea. Um, no. In last week's episode, we saw the sailors do that, and only after Jonah insisted. Jonah's psalm reflects the tradition he's been raised in and shaped by. He knows how to pray these prayers. His words echo some of the most beloved and poignant psalms, songs and prayers written by a community that knows what it is to lament, to rage, to despair. His community also knows what it looks and sounds like to offer praise and thanksgiving. This community also knows what it means to confess. Another piece of Jonah's psalm that raises scholars' eyebrows is the fact that he does not confess. As Dr. Carol Bechtel writes, under the circumstances, we might expect a confession of sin to precede the prayer of thanksgiving. She says, I suppose we could assume that the waves and billows are passing, still passing over Jonah. Still, this prophet does not seem particularly contrite. And the Bible does not record any such confession. She says, all we get is, in essence, phew, thanks for getting me out of that. Bechtel seems a bit more amused than irritated by Jonah. She hails from Michigan, but I'm fairly certain she would offer at least one bless your heart in Jonah's direction if she still lived in Richmond, Virginia, where I had her as a seminary professor. I've tried to explain bless your heart to people who live north of here. <laughs> it is a particularly southern expression. 
Bless your heart or his heart or their heart or her heart is loaded. It is, of course, a way of um, indirectly saying that someone is utterly ridiculous. But it can be more nuanced than that, too. This phrase can convey genuine concern as well as frustration or exasperation all wrapped up in a tidy bundle. He still doesn't know how to parallel part, bless his heart. (laughs) Bless her heart, she's only three and she is determined to ride her tricycle to preschool. They think the Panthers can win the Super Bowl next season, bless their hearts. Bless his heart, I contend, could apply in the case of Jonah's prayer, too. While some scholars want to write Jonah off as brazenly performative, praying what he thinks he should pray, others determine that he is blatantly hypocritical for wrongly touting his own faithfulness. Bechtel, on the other hand, wonders if God smiles at Jonah's prayer as he prays in the dark. She writes, when Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, he is praying in the dark, literally and figuratively. If he knows his prayer is amusing, he doesn't let on. Moreover, he seems utterly insensible to the irony of thanking God for thwarting the very thing Jonah had set out to do, namely escape from the presence of the Lord. Bechtel goes on to wonder if our prayers make God smile, too. I am fairly sure God smiles or even shakes the divine head when he hears at least some of my well-intentioned prayers. I don't always know what I truly need or what is exactly right for me or anyone else, nor do I readily acknowledge the many ways I do what God asks me not to do or confess all the ways I fail to do what God calls me to do. When I pray for peace, for comfort, for guidance, for courage, I often have something specific in mind. And as well-meaning as I may be, I could be off base. Goodness knows my perspective is limited and my vision, because I am human, is a bit skewed. I mean well. I really do. Bless my heart. As Bechtel suggests, like Jonah, we pray in the dark, not always knowing what is good for us or for others, I might add. Maybe, she writes, that's why Jesus put that all-important proviso into the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. Maybe I'm alone in this, but so often I want to advise God in my praying to serve as God's consultant on what exactly God's will could be. Bless my heart. In praying that God's will be done, really praying that, perhaps I am nudged just a bit to consider and reconsider over and over again what God's will might actually be. Toward the end of worship, some of our young friends will help me lead the Lord's Prayer, which they have learned and memorized during pew prep over the past year. If you listen closely on any given Sunday this summer especially, you will hear their young voices praying this ancient beloved prayer from their hearts with joy and conviction. I hope they always will. I hope we will too. 
even when it is so very hard to trust God's will, especially when it is so very hard to trust God's will. Just before he is so unceremoniously belched onto the beach, Jonah declares, deliverance belongs to the Lord. And here, he is exactly right. Deliverance or salvation, as it can also be translated, is God's work, God's doing. As I have said more than once, we do not and cannot save ourselves. Whether we find ourselves wrapped in seaweed or in the belly of a whale or not. And so we help one another by continuing to thank God and praise God. Together we keep confessing, keep wondering, keep listening, keep trying to align our work and our wills with God's. And we keep praying, thy will be done. Sometimes we'll get it right. And sometimes we will blow it spectacularly. Bless our hearts. And God promises to keep nudging, to keep calling us back, to keep leading us forward. And all the while, God keeps working on us and with us because God remains determined to deliver us, to save us no matter how often we cause God to smile or shake his head or think to God's self. Bless their hearts. Let us pray. Patient and merciful God, we do not know how to pray as we ought. Help us to want the right things for others and for ourselves. Help us to pray, thy will be done and mean it. And when your answer to our prayers is no, help us to trust that you love us and want only the best for us. Bless us, O oh God, even as you bless our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.